Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I apologize if some of y'all resembled that too much, and so there was no uh, no no likeness indicated there. I guess I should have put the uh, the thing at the beginning that uh, this this doesn't this is not connected to real life events, and so uh, so don't be offended or anything. That's a clip from the Pixar movie Wall-E back in 2008. If that makes you feel old, tells a story about a love-struck recycling robot that falls in love with a fancy new robotic probe named Eva. Wally's adventure, the little robot there, takes him to the Axiom, a colony spacecraft that's designed to preserve humanity after the world is ruined by ecological disaster. In the time since that spacecraft had left the Earth, the humans on board, as you saw there, devolved into helpless obesity due to the microgravity and outright laziness with robots catering to their every whim. They float around in their hover chairs, constantly entertained with hollow screens at the mercy of their commercial overlords, the B&L Corporation. At the time, I didn't know that Wally and Pixar were prophetic, but after that movie has aged some, it appears that that is very much a prophetic work, and so we might add it, the book of Wally, uh, to the end of our, tuck it in the back back there, but it is very prophetic, and it feels like we are moving in an accelerated pace towards the world indicated by that Pixar movie. Uh, of course, with things like the new Apple glasses that uh, give you a, a, a heads-up reality of everything, it's, it's interesting how closely we are moving in that direction. As you know, in 2020, the world changed. Even as the media tells us there's a new variant of COVID, it's on the uptick. Uh, you can't help but think back to March of that year when everybody got sent home. Unless you were an essential worker. We all learned what it meant to be an essential worker. If you were not an essential worker, it made you feel like you were somehow less human than everybody else. If you were unessential, you got sent home. And there were already a lot of corporations, maybe you were already in that boat where you already were able to work from home or your company had a work from home policy. Overnight in March of 2020, every company had to have a work from home policy. However, here we are three and a half years removed from when the pandemic started. A lot of companies are reevaluating those work-from-home policies. Just on Friday of this past week, NPR, not necessarily the most conservative publication on the planet, published this report. Back in 2020, when schools were still virtual and city dwellers were living with their lives in masks, Jamie Dimon emerged as one of the earliest critics of remote work. There's a huge value to working together in terms of collaboration and creativity and training the younger people, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase told MSNBC last month. Three years later, his message is unchanged. The difference now is that the sentiment has gone mainstream. Today, even Zoom's leadership is extolling the benefits of in-person work. What we found is people have enjoyed coming back to the office, said Zoom's chief people officer. I guess that's the human resources VP. I don't know, the chief people officer. So we're gonna add that title. Jacob, you wanna be the, the chief people officer here? No, okay. <laughs> that's got Foster's name written all over it. The chief people officer. Matthew Saxon is his name. Uh, what a title. 
He says, there's a buzz. There's something about being able to go have lunch with your teammates. This is Zoom, folks. The company that, the name of the company has become a thing, like a Zoom call. It's, a, it's an adjective now. It's common vernacular of the pandemic. I got to go get on a Zoom call. We still talk about it. If you're on a Google Meets, it's a Zoom call. If you're doing Microsoft Teams, it's a Zoom call. It's like it's become a word for us. They're asking workers to come back to the office a whopping two days a week. Well, the story continues. After an outcry from Republicans in Congress, the Biden administration has called on federal agencies to aggressively execute, that's a scary term, to aggressively execute the shift to more in-office work this fall, a move that's already sparked clashes with federal employee unions. I do believe we need to be around each other in person more than we are now to ensure this department's long-term success, says U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg in a video to his employees. <laughs> Nothing gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling like the federal government agencies talking about long-term success. That can't be for our good. It reminds me of Ronald Reagan, the nine scariest words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. There have been all kinds of debates about the productivity at at-home work versus in-office work. Many of you are still working from home and you find it to be incredibly productive. I was talking to my brother-in-law and he was talking about how, how the work day never ends. You can take a break at dinner and then come back at bedtime and finish up some things and so companies get more work than they are originally getting. But we don't have time to deliberate that today. We know that the at-home learning thing really worked out well for our kids. But the at work, work from home thing, we're just not sure about whether it's good for us or not. I know that the large vacant office buildings in our cities is certainly a concern. What I find interesting about this whole conversation is that lurking behind this debate is actually an issue that is fundamental to who we are as human beings, our, our human identity, not our Christian identity, our human identity. And while secular media and industries aren't really thinking about this or talking about this, vocation and work are essential to us as image bearers of God. And as you can imagine, the Bible isn't silent on this topic at all. Even though it may not get preached very often, it is a topic that's near and dear to, or should be near and dear to all of our hearts. In fact, some of the last words that we have recorded from the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica address this topic specifically. We're almost finished with First and Second Thessalonians. We got one more message after today, but today we're going to look at Second Thessalonians chapter three, beginning in verse six. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as I read these words from Second Thessalonians chapter three, beginning there in verse six. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, 
Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Father, I thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul speaking specifically to our work ethic and, and how we as Christians should conduct ourselves in, in the workplace. God, I know that uh, these are interesting times in which we live, but it is time that we as the church show the world what a Christian virtue of work ethic is really like. Bless the reading and, and preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you be seated. I remember when I was a wee little kid, and I remember in the car with my dad, and we would ride past this building down in Lafayette, and the sign said, Department of Labor. And a kid, again, I could read, but I didn't necessarily know what everything meant, and so I would ask my dad, what happened at the Department of Labor? And his answer was always the same. I learned dad jokes at an early age. He said, that's where women go to have babies. But it confused me because no one going into that place looked like they were having babies. I eventually figured out that the Department of Labor didn't have anything to do with that kind of labor after all, that it was an entirely different kind of labor that was going on there. Well, it turns out that the church in Thessalonica needed a Department of Labor. They were having a labor problem. There was a work problem that was happening in the church at Thessalonica. And again, scholars, Bible folks have tried to put together the reason for these problems. Nobody's completely sure, but the, the reason we think that the church is so confused about the labor thing is because they're confused about the second coming of Christ. That so many were confused that many in the church had decided that it would be best if they just put everything on hold. So they would be able to focus on Jesus' return. Now, that would be nice, right? Uh, the, the thing today is, is adulting, right? That's when you do adult things like pay your mortgage. That's called adulting today. It'd be nice to put all that on hold. I'd love to call up whoever takes my, my mortgage this month and say, you know what? I'm going to skip this month, and I'm going to focus on Jesus' return, and I'll get back to you. I mean, that'd be a great phone call to make, but they would eventually find me, and they would say, hey, look, Jesus is coming back. You don't need this place to live anyway. They're confused, and so they say, let's just put all this on hold and focus on Jesus' return. Now, there have been plenty of times throughout church history where a group got really zealous about Jesus' return and took to extreme measures. We know that's happened before. The catch here in 2 Thessalonians, though, is that it seems that those who were really, really, really zealous had given up their earthly pursuits, and, but they also expected that the church would be there to take care of them. That, hey, we've given up our job, we've given up our career, we've given up everything, but the church has got a benevolence fund, so as long as the church is there with this benevolence fund, then I don't have to work. You can sort of see where the problem in that mindset sort of begins to unravel, because if no one's working, then there's no benevolence fund, then eventually people start starving, because there's no money available to help meet that need. What we find out, though, is that this idea that's crept into the church, it doesn't really line up with the priority that Paul specifically and Scripture generally placed on the significance of work and vocation. I was reading one commentator. He said, if you were guaranteed that Jesus was going to return tomorrow, what would the apostle Paul expect from you? He'd expect for you to get up and go to work if Jesus were coming back tomorrow. He'd expect you to get up and do your job because that's the emphasis that Paul places on work and vocation. 
I think that we, we tend to have a very corrupted view of work and vocation in our minds today. Again, it's easy to understand why. Because the idea of work is one of those things that was directly affected by the fall. And just because it was affected by the fall and the subsequent curse, though, it doesn't mean that it's forever ruined. It's important that we view this properly through a biblical lens. And in order to understand this from a biblical lens, we've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And we understand from way back in Genesis chapter 1 that work and vocation were part of God's original intent for human beings. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. But all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Again, I know we're not in 2 Thessalonians, but it's important to lay this groundwork because we are dealing with a topic. We're dealing with something that had a place before the fall and the curse. This was something that was in place before God cursed the ground and and said that Adam was going to hate work. This happened before then because work and vocation were part of God's original creation plan. Just consider what Genesis 1 says, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All of that language about subduing and dominion, that is the language of work. That is the language of vocation. There were things that had to be done. The Bible is making a very important statement about the importance of vocation and work. Subduing and dominion is not a passive process. Just imagine trying to subdue a a toddler that was not yet potty trained. You don't just do that passively when you're changing that diaper. That is active work. It is something that has to be that, that you got to be involved in. And understand this: that if we go back to Genesis chapter one, before sin had ever entered into the equation, the command is still in place to subdue, to exercise dominion over. All of that's still in place. If sin had never entered into the equation, and Adam and Eve were busy multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it, exercise dominion, roads would have still needed to be built to move around. Technology would have still needed to be developed. Children would have still needed to be educated. All of those things would have still needed to happen if sin had never entered into the equation. Without sin ever even being talked about, What do we have already? We have the industries of agriculture, construction, education, and all the supporting institutions that go along with it. If Adam and Eve had never sinned and just concentrated on multiplying, filling, subduing, and exercising dominion, they would have built a civilization with all of the industries needed to sustain that civilization. It would have still been in place. God's instruction to Adam and Eve before the fall was not just the two of them on a perpetual camping trip in the garden. You guys just camp out here, enjoy yourselves. That was not the instructions that God gave them. Yes, God met their needs in the garden, but God's plan for Adam and Eve was to expand their influence beyond the garden to bring the entirety of creation under their dominion as God's delegated representatives on this planet. That was God's original intent with creation. Now, similarly, marriage was instituted before the fall and the curse as well. As a result... 
Both work and marriage are given to people as part of the created order. They are not uniquely or specifically Christian. That is why work happens regardless of whether we're Christian or not. That's why marriage is a civilizational reality, not just a Christian reality. But as Christians, we do prize these things because they are part of God's original intent given to us as his image bearers. Now, what do we know has happened? We can't ignore the fall and the curse. And as a result of the fall or the curse, God's original design and creation has been damaged. And it seems that the further we get away from the fall and the curse, the, the more we're losing track of what that intent and design was. We know the damage that has been done to the institution of marriage. It's been well thought out and discussed from this pulpit. We know the damage that's been done. But we also recognize that over the course of time, work and vocation bear the scars of a curse that promised that our work would be characterized by toil. Listen to the curse in Genesis 3, verse 17. God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you, t you shall return. Again, in the curse, we see that, that our work is now less fulfilling because it's characterized by sweat and toil. But this is the power of the gospel because the gospel sets us on a new pathway with the eventual goal that we are glorified in moral perfection when we reach, when we reach eternity. However, as we grow in our sanctification, we should also find that we are growing in our understanding and appreciation of the things of God in this life as well. As a consequence, as Christians, people who are trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and grow in, our, grow in his grace and grow in our understanding and grow in how that works itself out in our lives, we recognize that work and vocation ought to become more and more fulfilling to us. And understood properly, our work even if it is hard work, is not just to put food on our tables and roofs over our heads, but it is also to be seen as a daily offering unto the Lord. The Apostle Paul gets into this in the book of Colossians chapter three. He says in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He goes on in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. What this means is that, is that when you go to your job, your supervisor is not the guy standing over you signing your paycheck. Your supervisor is the Lord Jesus Christ. You work for him. The guy who signs your paycheck is just the intermediary. He's just the guy to help you be accountable for the job that you're supposed to do. But when you go to work, you're working hardly as for the Lord, not for the owner of the company, not for the board of directors, not for your supervisor or the boss. You are working as unto the Lord. Because Christians understand this, we understand that we can do everything from flipping burgers in the kitchen of a fast food restaurant to running a Fortune 500 company to the glory of God. Whatever that vocation is, whatever that work is, it can be done to the glory of God. Now, this was a subject that the church in Thessalonica was having some issues with. And Paul has some pretty potent words for them 
and for us as well. We understand this, that laziness and sloth have no business in the life of a Christian. We look at verse six there, and and the apostle Paul says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. I think it's important for us to understand some terms here so that we know what we're up against. That word idle shows up various times in this text. This is why English is terrible, because we have idle and we have idle. One idol is something, a false god that we bow down and worship to. This idol is a type of laziness. When, when you look at someone who is, who is idle, you are describing someone who is, who is lazy. It's an interesting word in the New Testament because it's more than just lazy. It's more than just somebody like the Proverbs talk about a sluggard who's, who's not able to, to get his hand from his bowl to his mouth. He talks about the lazy person. But this word in the New Testament points to someone whose behavior is undisciplined, disorderly, or defies social, social convention. In no uncertain terms, this person is a, is a troublemaker. Paul actually calls them busybodies later on in verse 11. But in the context of what we're talking about here, this undisciplined person is really, really good at not working. They are experts at not working. They may even have a career made out of not working. In my mind, what comes to my mind is the modern keyboard warrior, that person who's really good at not doing anything except stirring up things along the way. We know people like that. Pray for them. Don't don't judge them. Pray for them. Those people spend a great deal of time behind a screen worrying about everybody else and chiming in on every social media trend and controversy without tending to their own work and their own physical and spiritual well-being. I'm not saying there's not a place for social media. It is something that God can use to share the gospel, but it's something people can use to really wreck their, their whole lives. I mean, it, they can get so sucked into this. People who work hard to the glory of God, you know what's something they don't have time for? They don't have time for empty pursuits. People who are working hard in their job, whatever their job is, and they recognize that it is for God's glory, they don't have time for these kind of empty things. And Paul says this is such a serious offense. Listen, the church should, should shun such a person. And I know that the church is supposed to shun. Yes, there are people that, that the Bible says to, to distance yourself from. Again, not be ugly to them or, or be nasty to them, not talk about them on social media, but people that you have to say, you know what, your, your life and your character is not in line with what we think is important, so we're going to keep you at arm's length until we can figure this out. Now, Paul doesn't provide for formal church discipline in this command. There are other places where the Scripture provides for formal church discipline, where the church says, yeah, they're no longer with us because of the direction that they've taken their life in. But even though he doesn't provide a mechanism for kicking them out of the church, he does provide an element for tough love in this place. Look at the end of verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Well, that's pretty good discipline. Uh, If he's not willing to work, then let him not eat. What's that talking about here? Well, obviously we're not talking about the church not caring for people who have legitimate needs. The church absolutely seeks to take care of those in the fellowship who are genuinely struggling. And that happens. Life happens. People run into problems that are unanticipated and unexpected. Maybe there are people who are not able to work due to illness or injury. The church absolutely exists and ought to help in those situations. Maybe they are people who lost their jobs due to some unexpected circumstance. 
Absolutely the church ought to be in a position to, to help in those times. We can all think of times when the church has rallied around someone at a time of need. Someone's house has burned down or there's been other, some sort of catastrophe that's happened and the church has stepped up to help during those seasons. This is not what he's talking about here. Paul makes a very clear distinction. If you are able to work and you're too busy doing other things, then the church has got to have a really, really hard conversation about why you don't qualify for the church's benevolence fund. It's not that they don't care. It's that you're not doing anything to help rectify the situation in your own life. And, and it's a product of, of not putting forth the effort to remedy that situation. This is what he's talking about here. And so there's no place for this type of, 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 of laziness or sloth in the Christian life. Instead, what Paul says is that the Christian work ethic should be exemplary to a watching world. Look at what he says about himself here. One of the key aspects of Paul's practical theology is that of imitation. Why was it so important? Because they didn't have this to read and to pursue and to structure their life after. And so without the full picture of Scripture, the only thing that churches frequently had were, again, the, the smattering of letters that they collected, but also the example of the apostles, the example of the apostle Paul. And Paul saw his commitment to vocation as a part of this. And we know what his vocation was. He was a church planter, but church planting didn't pay the bills, didn't put food on his table. Paul was a, a tent maker. He made awnings. He, he created this, he, he, he was a creator. He put stuff together in, that was beneficial for his communities. And the great thing about his trade is it was something could be set up in any community. Didn't have to have special equipment or anything like that. It was something that he could set up anywhere he went and meet real needs for real people in that community. And for all intents and purposes, Paul really kind of worked two full-time jobs. He would work as a tent maker during whatever business hours were appropriate. But when he wasn't working as a tent maker, he was working as a church planter. And the thing was, he didn't have a family to have to go home to. He didn't have any of those things. So he was able to give himself fully to his vocation and his calling. And all of this, all of this that Paul does was to differentiate himself from other wandering speakers and rhetoricians that use their message to earn a living. I love what he said here. He said, I didn't eat anybody's bread without, without, uh, without asking. I wish like teenagers knew that. Like, no, that's, that's my food. Those are my snacks in the pantry. Don't eat those without asking. As Christians, even as Christian leaders, we shouldn't shy away from work. It shouldn't be something that we avoid. And whatever work we do, it ought to be exemplary work. We have the example of Paul. We also have the example of Jesus. Jesus didn't have a vocation during his ministry, but he certainly set an example for what it meant to serve others. He lived, in a, he lived a life that was exemplary, one that's worthy of following. And it, even as he washed his disciples' feet, he told them, go and do likewise. He, he set the pattern for what it meant to serve one another. It was exemplary. The nature of our work and vocation matters much less than the integrity with which we do the work. You may hate your job right now. It may be terrible. You may be dreading Tuesday because it's a job that you don't enjoy going to, but the hatred you have for the job matters less than the opinion that you have of the Savior for whom you're doing the job. And so even if it's the worst job you could ever imagine, you got one of those jobs that nobody else wants, and, and uh, you may be looking to get out of that job at some point in time. It doesn't matter. 
in the meantime, when you show up for work, you show up for work to the glory of God because that's what we as Christians are supposed to do. When we go to our work, people may not like us as Christians, but they recognize the integrity with which we do the work that we do. And they should never be able to look at our work and say that it is somehow less than our best. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 speaks to this. It says, keep your conduct among the general Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He talks about conduct specifically, but that covers everything, our speech and our work. Your coworkers may hate the things that you stand for, but when they look at the quality of your work, there is no denying that you take what you do seriously because you recognize that you do that work to the glory of God. The problem with idleness is that it frequently gives rise to other sins. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, he says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. When people who are able to work, work, or when people who are able to work and unwilling to work, the problem is that it gives them time to busy themselves with, with other things. And again, Paul's not talking about hobbies and leisure here. He recognizes in the church here that there is a strong tendency among the idle to become what he calls busybodies. It's not just speculative. It's not just something he thinks is happening. He says it is reported. That means that somebody, probably Timothy, has reported this to Paul. Hey, listen, this is what's going on at the church. There are busybodies in the church. Now, if you underline and highlight, that's one of those words that's unique in the New Testament. It's the only place that this word shows up in the New Testament. And literally, the word he uses here means to work around, to work around. And it's a great picture of what a busybody does. What is a busybody? A busybody is somebody who works around the perimeter and periphery of your life, reaching in and, and, and helping you be a better, a better, uh, a better liver, as, uh, as you go, helping you do your life better. They reach in, they criticize as they go. They're not directly involved. It's not somebody that you've invited in to walk with you in the journey. It's somebody who's kind of circling from the perimeter. They're working around you. They're looking for an opportunity to help you. They're working around you. They, you didn't invite them in. You don't even want their input. It reminds me of a guy that I used to go fishing with. He was an expert. And when I say he was an expert, I mean, the man was an expert. He knew where the fish were, and he knew that if he put his, front of the, his, his end of the boat in this spot and my end of the boat in this spot, that he would catch all the fish, and I wouldn't catch anything. I mean, he was an incredible, incredible fisherman. And I'll say this, I'm not an expert, in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I could catch a fish. I really could. But if you're wanting me to provide the meal for the fish fry, you'd better be praying for a loaves and fishes type of miracle. Just saying. We'd be sitting in the boat, and, and, and he would watch his line and my line. He was a busybody fisherman. And we'd be sitting there, and, uh, you know, he's yanking fish out of the water like Jesus over there, pulling miraculous catches. And I'm sitting here not catching a thing, and he's watching my line. And the first time he did this, it blew my mind. He said, he said Pastor, you got a brim hitting. My line's not moving. He said, just, just set the hook. you got a brim. I said, I pull a fish in. I'm like, how did he know? 
that there was a brim down there nipping at my hook. Pastor, you got a crappie down there. What? He's watching my line and he is, y'all, I'm not making this up. He's identifying the fish based on how my line jiggles. And I'm thinking that I'm the one jiggling it. I'm thinking it's me. And I'm like, I've got fish like crazy there. And on the rare moment that I actually hooked what he said was biting, he was right. It used to drive me crazy. I want to jump in the lake and get away from him. How do you know what kind of fish is there based on how the line jiggles? The only difference between a busybody and my fishing buddy is that while he was also fishing my line, he was taking care of his line too. And busybodies don't do that. They're more worried about your life than they are theirs because your life is theirs. Busybodies are quick to work around your life because they've got the time. They're not doing anything with their own life. So Paul encourages them there in chapter three, verse 12. He says, now, such persons, talking to the busybodies, we command and encourage them in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. I'm gonna give you a more modern translation of this verse. Are you ready? This is not in any, any translation that I've found, so this is the, the contemporary Brian Carroll version. Mind your own business! This is what Paul is saying. Don't be a busybody. Do your own work. Mind your own business. The catch here is that as we understand work and vocation biblically, it tends to impact more, of, more than just how we spend nine to five Monday through Friday. Now, I know not every job is nine to five Monday through Friday, but we're gonna just use that as a placeholder. So whatever your job is, just let that be the placeholder for what your, what your clock says. There's a clip from Seinfeld. I don't know if you guys are Seinfeld fans, but, but George was unemployed, and he knows his unemployment benefits are about to expire, and so he goes to the unemployment office, and he is trying to negotiate with the representative there at the unemployment office about his benefits, and she says, your benefits are about to expire. You've only got two weeks left, and he says, can we extend those by 13 weeks? And she starts to ask questions. Well, well, are you looking for a job? And he says, well, I'm actually listening for a job. Because <laughs> listening is, is just as important as looking. Well, no, he's not looking for a job. So he is trying to get her to extend his benefits. She wants to know where he's been searching. And, and he starts making stuff up, hoping to keep the, that free unemployment flowing as he made up the place that he works. As Christians think about vocation and think about work, well, this affects how we evaluate stuff outside, stuff in the real world. For instance, we can be thankful for programs that help people when there are legitimate needs. But we should also be concerned when that help is extended where it isn't needed. Many of us have benefited from some sort of a help uh, through an unemployment check during a time of, of being laid off or without work. We, we certainly recognize where that has been helpful and needed from time to time. But what about when things like unemployment benefits are tied to drug tests or when there's actual accountability that the beneficiary is actually looking for work? And again, this sounds political, but it's really not. These are hot-button political topics, but, but those kind of requirements are actually in line with how Christians understand work and vocation. Paul says here, if you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. Well, there ought to be some, some accountability built into these, these systems that are designed to help people. 
Likewise, and I'm going to offend you here, a biblical understanding of work and vocation ought to affect how we think about retirement. There's nothing wrong with saving and planning to retire from paid vocation. But one of the things retirement ought to do is it ought to give us time to devote to more kingdom-related pursuits. I love the fact that our mission board in the Southern Baptist Convention, they offer what is called the master's program. The master's program is a two- to three-year mission deployment specifically for people over the age of 50. You can retire from your real job and then go serve the Lord on the mission field for two to three years in the master's program. It's a great thing because the fact of the matter is is that most, when you retire young, you've got years of active living before, uh, before you're no longer able to do those things. But you don't have to use your retirement to go be a missionary, to be a good Christian. I do think that the biblical understanding of work and vocation ought to have an impact on how we manage our retirement. Of course, there's nothing wrong with traveling to go see those grandbabies at the same time when we retire from that paid vocation. There's nothing to say that we don't have years of meaningful service available to the kingdom by redirecting our efforts into service that we didn't have time to do before. It should also go without saying that our understanding of work and vocation have an impact on those who aren't yet old enough to enter into a career. Students probably checked out a long time ago when they realized I was talking about work and career because, oh, this is for grown-ups. This doesn't apply to us. But listen, if you're a student, your vocation is your education. That is your, that is your vocation for the foreseeable future. There will come a time where they will give you a piece of paper that says you can go pursue a paid vocation. But in the meantime, your vocation is your education. And guess what? A biblical understanding of work and vocation means that you ought to put the same effort into your education that we expect grown people to put into their vocations. That is the expectation. I promise you, your teachers have that expectation of you. And that means that if you are a Christian, you ought to be putting forth your very best effort in that vocation of education. It doesn't mean that you have to be a straight-A student to be a good Christian, but it does mean that a Christian student ought to be putting forth their very best effort. And if that very best effort is a B, then to the glory of God, it's a B. If that very best effort is a C, then to the glory of God, it's a C. But it ought to be putting forth our very best effort so that at the end of the day, you stand before the Lord, you say, Lord, this is for you. And most of us, if we got to see, we'd say, you know what, I could probably do a little bit better for the Lord if I put forth a different type of effort or spent more time doing this, that, or the other. I would also say this. There's another segment of our population that often gets overlooked. Even those who are able to stay at home and invest in the career of raising kids. It may be one of the hardest jobs that we have, but it's certainly also the worst paying job that we have. Understand this, that work is no less important even though the pay may not reflect it. But even for those people whose vocation is more domestic and less commercial, they should also see their work as an offering to the Lord. It's certainly not an excuse to drift into the far less satisfying career of being a busybody. And this is Paul's instructions for the church. The church, as they can, as they're able, ought to go to work. They ought to go to work. They ought to take care of their needs. And then taking care of their needs help meet other needs when people 
can't work. People can't meet their needs for legitimate reasons. This is how this is supposed to work itself out in community, where people who can can contribute to the church's benevolence need, benevolence fund, where people who need, there's a benevolence fund available to help meet their needs. This is how the church is intended to work. Everyone who's able, go to work. Work hard. Work to the glory of God. If it's school, study hard. Study hard to the glory of God. If it's raising kids at home, do it to the very best of your ability. Raise those kids to the glory of God. And when life throws you a curveball, when you can't take care of your needs, know that there's a loving church that's available to help meet those needs on your behalf. And that's how God's designed this. And when we reclaim that biblical understanding of work and vocation, it's amazing what the church can actually do. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it speaks to things in our lives that, God, sometimes we think is, is off limits or that the Bible is silent about. Thank you, God, that even in something that's as, as unexciting as work, that the scriptures speak with clarity about this. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to find value in our vocation, whatever that may be. Lord, uh, most under the sound of my voice are going to have tomorrow off as a holiday. But as Tuesday rolls around and we show up at our workplace, whether we work on building things out in the, in the yards or whether we work on building lives in the classroom or, God, whatever it is that you have us doing at this season, I pray, Father, that you would help us to approach that work to your glory so that anyone who would look at us doing that work, they would recognize that we are answering to a authority that's even higher than the one that signs our paychecks. Lord, I pray for our students as they, as they do their work, their studies, their work in the classroom, indeed even their work on the athletic field, in the field of competition, that they would even see those as offerings unto the Lord, that they would do those things, that they would study to the glory of God, that they would take a test to the glory of God, that they would practice to the glory of God, that all of those things that they do, they would do not because there's a teacher asking for the assignment or a coach who is making them work, but they would do it because they submitted their lives to Jesus and they see that work as an offering unto the Lord. And God, for those who are retired, Lord, those who have managed to, to be able to retire from their, from their paid vocation, I pray, God, that they would be good stewards over their retirement that they would make the, the biggest impact for the kingdom that they can. Every circumstance is different. Everybody's health is different. There's so many different things that, that each of us experience, Lord, but whatever it is, may we be able to do it and you be pleased with it. Lord, help us to avoid the sin of idleness and that we would serve and work and do all for the glory of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.